Well, this is Bruce Hayes, and I'm going to welcome you again to PV Bible Alive. This is the podcast ministry for Parkview Baptist Church, and today we are continuing with a second sermon out of the book of 1 Thessalonians. We are going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 of that book. So if you want to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, it says there, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the assembly of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We always give thanks to God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before God our Father. We know, brothers, loved by God, that you are chosen and that our good news came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. You know what kind of men we showed ourselves to be among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all who believe in Macedonia and in Achaia. For from you the word of the Lord has been declared, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, for from, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out, so that we need not to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us what kind of reception we had from you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, in this letter to the church at Thessalonica, we get a glimpse into what church is supposed to be. We mentioned in the sermon last time that of the churches that Paul wrote letters to Thessalonica is one that there's very little to criticize. And uh, what you find is a very um, loving and familial relationship between Paul and those that are in Thessalonica. And so, as we look at the letter, discover that that's the case there, we can take that church as an example of what church is supposed to be. We're going to be studying this epistle to the church in Thessalonica, and uh, and we're going to be studying it under that title, church, as it's supposed to be. You might wonder if I have more detail about how do I know that this church is kind of this ideal or exemplary church? Well, I've read the letters to Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, and I've read the letters to other churches. Uh, for example, if you were to read the letters to the church in Corinth, you you might make note that they had quite a number of problems that Paul was addressing. I had mentioned that I had to memorize all of those 
problems for a seminary class so that I could write on a test, you know, what, are, what were the problems at the church in Corinth? And, and they had a great number of them. They were, there were factions between them. Some of them were followers of Paul. Some of them were followers of Apollos and, and so on. So they were divided. They, they had questions about eating meat sacrificed to idols. There was a problem with um, a man who, who had taken his, his uh, stepmother as his wife. Um, there was tongues. There was uh, the battle of the sexes, the problems with the Lord's Supper, just all kinds of stuff going on. But by contrast, if you look at the church in Thessalonica, you, you don't find those things. You find a lot of commendations, encouragement. For example, in First Thessalonians, it says in chapter 1, verse 2, We always give thanks to God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. In chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says to the church there, Even so, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not the good news of God only, but our own souls. Um, chapter 4, Finally then, brothers, we beg and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, that you abound more and more. It wasn't, he was saying they received it, they acknowledged the truth of what he had said before, and now all he's saying is not that you haven't done what you're supposed to, we're just wanting you to excel in it. We want you to abound more and more. Verse 9 of the same chapter but concerning brotherly love, we have no need that one write to you. We don't even have to write to you about brotherly love because you got that down. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And again, he says that he wants them to abound more and more. You're doing it. We just want you to do it in an overabundance. And in chapter 5, verse 23, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, all he's saying is we want you to reach that point of complete sanctification. So this church is a great church. Um, and... So we take it as an example of what church is supposed to be. Now, um, we're going to look at these letters over the coming weeks in my church. And so we'll be recording podcasts regarding these letters, church as it's supposed to be. And the outline for uh, what we're, where we're going is... Uh, the church is supposed to be a place of encouragement, number one, a place of a people, I'm sorry. And again, let me say this. I originally had written the church is supposed to be a place of encouragement. It really isn't a place. Church is not a place. It's a people. 
doesn't matter if we gather in the building that we have here in Wichita at 3430 South Meridian or whether we're down at the park for a picnic or, or wherever we are. The church is the people. So we're supposed to be a people of encouragement, a people of self-sacrifice, a people of controversy, a people of joy, a people of purity, a people of work, a people of clarity, a people of unity, and a people of growth. So first off, we're going to look at the church as a place that's supposed to be a people of encouragement. I ran across this poem and kind of describes what we're supposed to be. It reads like this. This was in The Increase. It's a magazine, I'm assuming. The 35th anniversary issue, 1993. says, A builder or a wrecker, as I watched them tear a building down, a gang of men in a busy town with a ho-heave-ho and a lusty yell, they swung a beam and the side wall fell. I asked the foreman, Are these men skilled? The men you'd hired... As the men you'd hired you if you wanted to build, he gave a laugh and said, No, indeed, just a common labor is all I need. I can easily wreck in a day or two what builders have taken years to do. And I thought to myself as I went my way, which of these roles have I tried to play? Am I a builder who works with care, measuring life by rule and square, Am I shaping my work to a well-made plan, patiently doing the best I can? Or am I a wrecker who walks to town content with the labor of tearing down? O Lord, let my life and my labors be that which will build for eternity. Well, that really describes this first point that we're trying to make today, that the church is supposed to be a place of encouragement. Another word for encouragement is edify. That means to build up. And those are the issues that Paul is writing about to this church that uh, with which he has little to crit criticize. He, the first one is that they are to be a place of encouragement. So as we open up the scripture concerning that, Let's consider the ver first three verses of chapter 1. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the assembly of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We always give thanks to God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love, and perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. Now we're going to end up considering all of chapter 1 under this point. But verses 1 through 3 are a good start for us. So the question is, how do we encourage each other in the church? Well, verses 1 through 10 give us an example of from the relationship that existed between Paul and this church, and between this church and Paul, 
and this church and other churches. There was this kind of symbiosis of encouragement going on between those entities. So what I'm going to do today is simply, number one, look at a, a definition of encourage and encouragement. And then I'm going to show you three ways that the church of Thessalonica encouraged and was encouraged. And so use those as examples for us about becoming a place of encouragement, a people of encouragement. So the three ways that the church in Thessalonica encouraged and was encouraged was, number one, they lifted each other up in prayer. Number two, they reminded each other of their position. Number three, they exhibited to each other a right pattern. And you want to hang your hat on something that's prayer, position, and pattern. But we're going to start off with a definition of the word encourage, because I think that builds the foundation for what it means for the church to be a, a people of encouragement. Encourage means to strengthen or establish. So strengthen or establish. The church is to be a people who strengthen and establish. You know, a lot of times we think of ad encouragement as, you know, just positive words. Um, just saying something nice to somebody. Telling them they're, they're doing a good job or whatever else it is. But you see, encouragement is not just saying positive words. You know, keep your chin up. It's always darkest before the dawn. Rather, encouragement, scripturally anyway, means to do something to shore someone up who needs stabilizing. It, it means to prevent someone from toppling over. That's what strengthen and establish and stabilize all mean. Let me give you an example of that from the Old Testament that I think is a, a wonderful illustration of encouragement. This was written in the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. It says, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Now listen to verse 6. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered them. They encouraged them with what? Was it like, you guys are doing such a good job. We're so happy that you volunteered to rebuild this temple, hope everything works out for you, we're praying for you. No. It says in the passage, they encourage them with the stuff they needed for the work. They encourage them with articles of silver and gold, 
with goods and livestock, with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. You see, God had placed a task before Ezra and those returning to Jerusalem. Their job was to rebuild the temple. So, when the people encouraged them, they encouraged them not just by walking up and saying, well, good luck with that. You can do anything you set your mind to. No. It doesn't say they even said anything. It says they encouraged them with the things they needed to get the work done. And that really is what encouragement is. It Sometimes it, it can be words of encouragement. Sometimes it can be just a pat on the shoulder and a hug. But sometimes... The encouragement comes in something tangible with with a ride to a place that a person needs to go to with maybe even some gift to them to help them with a, an issue they're they're trying to re- resolve sometimes it's fixing a meal for an individual that can be an encouragement so what does encouragement mean for the church in Thessalonica First Thessalonians 5.11, Paul writes to the church there, Therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Edify. So I said before, edify means to build up. Well, in Ezra, it meant gold and livestock that they needed. But in the the church in Thessalonica, there were different issues. There were different things that were needed. The people of Thessalonica were living under the threat of persecution. If you remember back to the story of Thessalonica and Paul, he he started that church. He, he went into town. He He took three Sabbath days teaching in the synagogue. He was only there for, you know, three weeks or so. And he gained some converts. But he was essentially forced out of town from Thessalonica. And then later forced out of town from Berea. But he can't get the... Thessalonians out of his mind. Even though he goes to Berea, to Athens, Corinth after that, even at Corinth, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about Thessalonica. He's thinking about those believers that he left behind. So what does he do? What does he do? He doesn't just say, golly, I hope they're doing okay. He doesn't just uh, write them a nice letter sent by uh, Western Union saying, thinking of you. Literally, what does he do? He gives up his fellow workers, Timothy and Silas, sends them back to make sure that these new Christians are okay. We read about that earlier. Timothy went back to Thessalonica. Silas went back to Philippi. 
He sent somebody. He did something that they needed. That really is what encouragement is. He knew they were enduring the hostility of certain people in their community. So Paul calls on Timothy to go back to comfort and edify by his presence and his actions. Well, what would that look like in Thessalonica or in our church? Well, in that encouragement can be words, but it's not limited to words. In Thessalonica, it's possible that some Jewish believers were beaten for their newfound faith, because Paul was. What would be encouraging to them? Well, what did they need? They needed medical care, somebody to attend to their wounds. Some may have lost their jobs or homes or families for their faith. What would encouragement look like to them? It wouldn't be walking up to them, as it says in the book of James, and saying, oh, be warmed and filled. We hope we hope everything works out. God bless you. Instead, what it meant was they needed a place to sleep. Some of them might have needed help finding employment. And that's what encouragement is. It's not just nice words. It is doing something to help with the needs of an individual. And that is what church is supposed to be. A people, a place where you know people who care about your problems. And they don't just give lip service. And you know what? As I thought about that for this sermon, I know that kind of encouragement has happened at our church. I know people who have opened their homes to someone who needed a place to stay until they got back on their feet. I know people who have helped get others to the store or to doctor's appointments. I know some who've given away vehicles to others in need. Some have helped someone get a job or study for a test. And there have been monetary offerings given. That's all encouragement. And those are all things that should be happening in the context of the church. Well, what does Paul specifically describe as means of encouragement? That's where we get to those three things I mentioned before. Prayer, position, and pattern. Look at what it says. One of the ways to encourage each other was by lifting each other up in prayer, lifting each other up in prayer. Well, what kind of prayer are we talking about here? Well, he really tells us three things about the prayers that he is lifting up to God. Number one, his prayers are unceasing. They are specific and they are God-centered. Those are encouraging things in prayer. Those are things that you need to have in prayer that really build up a person. So let me get to number one. His prayers were unceasing. Paul encouraged them with unceasing, unstopping prayer. I want you to look at all of the superlatives in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 says, We always give thanks to God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers, 
remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before God our Father. We always give thanks to God for all of you without ceasing. He was praying all the time for these people and for all of the people in that church. What that indicates is that he's thinking about each and every person who is a part of the church in Thessalonica, and he's mentioning them in his prayers. When he writes to them, he doesn't just offer them some sort of trite, well, thinking of you. He lets them know that he mentions each of them in his prayers. And how often does he mention them in his prayers? Always. Without ceasing. He says, we don't stop praying for you. I can just imagine Paul traveling from place to place. And to a certain extent, though he lived in a a much more primitive world than what we live in, there are certain things that were made easier for him than sometimes for us. If you are walking or riding from one city to the next, and you're going to spend hours in travel, what else do you have to do in the first century other than pray? You don't have much else going on. And, you know, sometimes that's a disadvantage to us. We always are within arm's length of the radio or of some music. We we have very quick trips from one place to the to the next so that we we don't have very much time to to spend. Sometimes we don't even think about prayer. And when we get back home, we have a television, we have Uh, all kinds of gadgets and gizmos that distract us. Well, Paul spent that time in prayer. And if we are going to be a church that is a church, a people of encouragement, it's one of the things we have to get back to is being a people of prayer. Well, not only were his prayers unceasing, They were specific. They were specific. Look at verse 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before God, our, our God and Father. So look at what he says whenever... Whenever we, he says, I'm praying for you without ceasing, I was remembering you. His prayer is based on his memory of them, his memory of everything that he taught them, his memory of the relationships that began back there in Thessalonica. It was not just some generic list of petitions that he would pray for any group of Christians. He calls to mind specifics about their walk of faith. You say, well, what specifics are we talking about here? Well, look at what he says. He says three things. He says, I'm remembering your work of faith, your labor of love, your perseverance of hope. 
Now, that, that's kind of interesting because your work of faith, uh, you could translate that your faith that produces work. Your, your faith that produced work. Or the salvation that brought you to the place where you are today. Labor of love has to do with the service that a person does. And perseverance of hope has to do with their steadfastness. And let me just say this. It's almost as though he's saying, I'm praying about what happened to you in the past. I'm praying about what's what's happening to you now. And I'm praying about what's going to happen to you in the future. Your work of faith, the very first thing. The, when God began working in you and it produced faith, and now that faith that's in you produces work. That's the past. Paul is praying for each individual in the church of Thessalonica. And I think what he is calling to mind in his prayers first is that thankful moment when that person repented of their sins and turned to faith in Christ Jesus. It's as though he's saying, oh, uh, Lord God, you remember uh, John whenever he came to faith. And I just thank you, Lord, for what he's experienced there. Let me give you an example of that a few years ago. I was privileged to be a part of someone coming to faith. Now, as I pray for them, I might say, Thank you, Lord, for your work in this person's heart. I know you're continuing to draw them into a deeper walk with you. Lord, they came out of a life of addiction. Protect them from the assault of Satan. Build them up in their faith. That's a way you pray about their work of faith. Well, look at the second thing he prayed for. Their labor of love. He's talking about what they're currently doing, laboring and the love that's being manifested in their life is coming out in, in working on behalf of the church and on behalf of the people of the church. It really is about their present condition, their current ministry or circumstance. He's calling to mind in his prayers whatever they are specifically doing now as believers. That, that might be that he's thinking, you know, Mary over there in that church in Thessalonica, boy, I know that she's uh, making those blankets for people. And Lord, I just thank you for that service that she's doing. And I pray you'd strengthen her in it. Help her to understand that even though it seems to her a small work, that it means a lot to people and that it is opening their eyes to the love that God has to offer them. Again, I remember this person that I had a part of seeing them come to faith. And and I might pray about their current giftedness. Lord, I know you're using this person to guide young people in their church. Encourage them to be faithful to your word, to rightly divide the word of truth. Call to his mind the example that he's setting for these young ones. Show your love to him so he knows how to show it to them. So you're praying about 
how they came to faith. You're praying about what they're currently doing in their labor of love. And you're also praying about their future, their perseverance of hope. And that basically means their steadfastness. You, you're praying that they keep at it, that they don't lose the faith, that they don't lose hope. And that really is about their future. Paul is praying for their steadfastness. He's praying that they hold on to their faith. And that can be uh, talking about, for example, some individual in Thessalonica. And I draws a mind the, that in the story of Thessalonica, they dragged Jason out of his house and that they, they pulled him before the magistrates at the time and and he ended up having to pay some sort of bond uh, to to get his freedom back. That's pretty discouraging stuff. And so he's praying for Jason. He's not only praying about how he came to faith in his ministry, but he's praying that uh, he doesn't become discouraged in the middle of this oppression and this persecution that comes from the outside. If I were praying for the person that I thought of before, I might say, Lord, I know that this person is an en- enduring an illness that saps their strength. Lord, you promise to not put on them more than they're able to endure. I claim that promise, and I know you'll give them a peace that passes understanding. You're praying for their endurance, their perseverance. So Paul encouraged them with prayer. Encourage them with prayer. You might say, well, how can prayers encourage others in the church? How can my prayers encourage others in the church? I really think there are three ways that your prayers encourage others. Number one, um, they can be encouraging if we pray for them with them. If we pray for them, with them, means when when we we say uh, I'll pray for you, we stop that moment and we literally pray for them with them at that moment. That can be very encouraging. You might also encourage people if uh, when you pray for them, you tell them that you prayed for them. You know, I'm at home. And I say a prayer for such and such. I see them the next Sunday at church. And I say, you know, I was saying about this week, I was, I was praying for you and I prayed thus and such for you. And Or it could be written in a note um, telling you that I was praying for you. Um, I'm always more encouraged when I'm not only told I'm praying for you, but I'm also told what they're praying for. You know, as a pastor, it encourages my heart when someone says, I'm praying for you to be able to understand and clearly preach the word of God. That means I know that they're getting into um, exactly what I do in my ministry. So that gets back to that second thing. Paul's prayer was not only unceasing, it was also specific touching on the specifics of their ministry or their conversion or their future. 
Get specific when you tell someone you're praying for them. Let me tell you why. Not only does it help you to know that or help them to know that you're taking their real issues before the throne of grace. But it also forces you to take your praying more seriously. If when you say to someone, I'm praying for you, you automatically think I need to tell them what I'm praying for. Well, you'd better be praying for something specific or else it's going to come off as just kind of empty in regard to that person. If I force myself to tell someone what I'm praying for them, it also forces me to be biblical. Let me illustrate. If someone is depressed, I can say, I'm praying for you. Or I could say, I'm praying that you feel better. But really, that sounds a little empty and powerless. Instead, if I were to go to the Word of God to discover how I should pray for someone who's depressed, I might come across a lot of verses like Isaiah 26.3 that says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So now when I pray for that person who's depressed, I can pray, Lord, help this person keep their mind on you because you said that if they would keep their mind on you, you would keep them in perfect peace. Remind them by your spirit to meditate on your word, to turn from worldly shows and thoughts that bring them down and to begin filling their mind with your thoughts. Teach them to surround themselves with good Christian music and the Word of God. Teach them how to trust in you. And teach me, Lord, how I can be a further encouragement to their spirit. Then, when you talk to them about praying and your prayers for them, you can say, this is what I prayed for you. I prayed based on Isaiah 26.3 that if you would keep your mind on God, that he will keep you in perfect peace. I'm praying for that perfect peace as you keep your mind on God. So his prayers were unceasing. They were specific. They were also God-centered. They were God-centered. Look at what it says in verse 2. We always give thanks to God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and perseverance of hope. And look at the last phrase. In our Lord Jesus Christ, before our God and Father. His prayers are centered in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are always prayed before our God and Father. How can our prayers be encouraging? Well, they could be encouraging if they are centered in God. Um, they are encouraging not only because you look specifically at their issues and go to the Word of God. They're not only encouraging because they're unceasing or that the person knows you're praying for them. They are encouraging because you are taking your prayer to God. A real God. The real God. They uh, 
they're not just positive vibes that you're sending out there. They're not just words or actions designed to lift the spirit. They are words calling on our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father to act on behalf of our brother and sister in Christ. They're real. They go to a real God. And so that's why it's encouraging because very often when I pray, I don't have the words to say. I don't always know exactly what I should pray for a person. But I do know that when I pray, I am lifting up that person's problems, that person's issues, that person's life before a living and true God who does know what they need. And so our prayers should not only be unceasing, they should not only be specific, but they should be centered in God. Well, I hope that your prayers are not just an empty gesture, like saying, I'm thinking of you. You know, when you're saying, I'm praying for you, is that all that you're saying? I'm thinking of you? It's not if you actually believe there's a loving God that you're praying to who wants to encourage your friend's hearts far more than you do. If you want to be a people of encouragement, we have to be a people who believe in the power of prayer. We have to believe in the power of prayer. Well, I believe that. Well, how else are we to be a people of encouragement? Well, the second point that Paul mentions is that we are reminding each other of our position. We're reminding each other of our position. It's kind of interesting. Prayer had a past, present, and future sense to it. And our position in Christ has a past, present, and future aspect to it as well. Listen to verse 4. We know, brothers, loved by God, that you are chosen. And then verse 5. And that our good news came to you not in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit, and with much assurance. One of the ways that church can be a people of encouragement is if it is a place where you are elevated in your position. What that means is not that I am personally elevating you, but I am reminding you of who you are, your position in Jesus Christ. Every other place in the world, you may feel worthless, but it shouldn't be that way in the church. You see, once we get past the message of salvation, once we repent of our sins and surrender to Christ as Lord, it's all grace from there. And from that point forward, you are a child of God. You are a child of the King. That's your position in Christ. And so... When you come to church, that ought to be a place where you're reminded of who you are. You're not this worthless thing that God kind of scraped up out of the ditch and 
thought, well, I don't know, I might some find some place for this. Once he pulled you out of that ditch, now he made you and is making you into his child. He is making you like Jesus Christ. And you know, even if you go to church, to our church meetings, and you have failed that week in regard to sin, even then, you've already been forgiven. You are sitting in a position, in a place of forgiveness. You know, I think Christian people get really messed up in their theology here. Somehow people think that when you become a Christian, that you are forgiven of the sins that you've committed up to that point. But from then on, you need to walk a sanctified walk and make sure you ask forgiveness for every sin that you commit. And you'd better adequately grovel over that sin. And even then, we think that God's up there in heaven after you've sinned, shaking his head in disappointment and saying, are you ever going to get it right? Well, that's not a very encouraging message, is it? I think that's where a lot of people in church, Southern Baptists, have dropped the ball. In many Southern Baptist churches, we haven't done an adequate job of teaching basic doctrines. You say, what do you mean? Well, one of those basic doctrines is the doctrine of election. Look at what it says in verse 4. We know, brothers, loved by God, that you are chosen. You are chosen. You are elect, as it's written in some other passage of Scripture. That means God picked you. That means that God decided that you needed salvation. And that's a very encouraging thought to me. The doctrine of election is encouraging to me. You say, well, how is it encouraging, preacher? Listen to what the Bible says about you being chosen or elected. 1 Peter 2, 4 says this, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. That's talking about Jesus Christ being chosen for the work that God would have him do. Well, what was he chosen to do? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish, without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, what was manifest in these last times for you. Now, let me get to this point first. God chose Jesus, his son, to be the sacrifice for sin. And he chose him, guess what, before the world was ever created. 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit communed together in eternity past before the world was ever created and determined that God the Son would go and be sacrificed for the sins of men. Now, get this. God chose him. God the Father chose God the Son so that you could be chosen. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own people, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were chosen. He chose Christ so that you could be chosen. You say, oh yeah, I remember that day he chose me. It was Sunday, August 8th of 1973. No. That's not when God chose you. You could all sit here and tell me the exact day that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You might remember a day you walked in aisles or, or you prayed a prayer. A lot of you might know that date. But that wasn't the day you were chosen. Do you know what day you were chosen? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he, listen to this, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. It tells us in Scripture that Jesus was chosen to be our Redeemer before the world was ever made. And guess what? You were chosen before the world was ever made. He chose you before you were ever born, before you had ever called on Him, before you had ever committed a single sin. So, when Jesus died on the cross, He carried all your sin even the ones you haven't committed yet. My friends, that's why the doctrine of election is encouraging. All my sin is gone, even the sins of my future. Those sins are gone. That's why when we get together in church, We need to constantly remind each other of our position. We are a chosen people. We are a forgiven people. And no matter what you went through this last week, what you did and how you failed, you still come to this assembly of people as a forgiven and elected people. You know, I I didn't always comprehend that. I would be walking in my Christian life, doing pretty good, feeling pretty good about myself. Then I'd fall into some sin, you know, that same old sin that always besets me. And I'd think, God's got to be so discouraged with me. You know, and he's probably saying, Bruce, I thought you knew better. 
And then I'd spend days or sometimes weeks groveling around in my sense of worthlessness. And I'd crawl back to God. God, I'm so very sorry. I'm resolved to do better this time. Well, let me ask you this, and this is something I've had to think about. When God chose you, when God chose me, back at the foundation of the world, before anything was ever created, do you think he wasn't aware that you were going to fail repeatedly? You think he didn't know that? Do you think he wants you to pay for your sins with a few weeks of feeling really guilty? No. He wants to get off of your self-loathing hobby horse and get back to work. Confess your sins, cry about it a bit, and then say, okay, okay Lord, I'm ready for what's next. That's the encouraging word that we need to be hearing when we gather together as a body of believers. It's not about how much I've failed. It's it's about the task before me. And there's no time to sit and grovel. Let's just get it right with God and move on. That's why the doctrine of election is encouraging. Because it tells me that I serve God who chose this flawed and failing sinner before I was even born. Now, I know that some of you are struggling with some discomfort here. Because the idea of God choosing before the foundation of the world raises some questions in your mind. Like, well, my goodness, if he chose me, did I have a choice? Well, yes, you did. It says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, and whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then a third verse, John 6.37, All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So, you know, there's usually a couple of questions people have. Number one, if God chose me, did I have a choice in the matter? And if God chooses people, does that mean there are people that he chooses not to choose or people that he rejects? What if, what if somebody wanted to come to him, but he didn't pick them? Well, listen to what those verses say. They basically say anybody that comes to him, he won't cast out. And he chose those who were his before the foundation of the world. You say, well, preacher, how do you reconcile those two things? He chose you before the foundation of the world, but he won't reject anybody that comes to him. People struggle with this. You know, on the one hand, hyper-Calvinists say, well, 
The only ones who come to him will be those who are already chosen. Hyper-Armenians say, Well, God looked down through time and chose all the people who he knew would choose him. Well, how do you reconcile all that? And let me ask you this question. Where in the Bible does it say either of those two things? It doesn't. People try to get these doctrines and make them work together in their own minds. They look at the doctrine that says that God chose us before the foundation of the world, and then they look at the doctrine that says that God doesn't desire that any should perish. And then they look at the doctrine that says that if anyone comes to him, he won't cast him out. And they try and come up with a way to reason in their own minds how that fits together. You say, well, how, preacher, do you reconcile them those things? How do you work it out? What's, what's your story? How do you make it work? Well, let me tell you a secret to theological happiness. I don't reconcile them. I don't reconcile them in my brain. It tells me that God chose us before the foundation of the world. It also tells me in Scripture that God wants everyone to be saved and that whoever comes to him, he won't cast out. How do I fit it all together? I don't. I don't know how God does the choosing. I don't know who comes to him and who doesn't and what's the process for how all that happens. And I'm not going to stand here in the pulpit and spin a yarn out of my own head, out of my own logic, that, that explains how the doctrine of election works. The reason I'm not going to do that is because it may be wrong. And then I will be guilty of preaching a lie. I just tell you what the Bible says. And I just say what it says based on faith. So the very first thing that place church is a place of encouragement and it's encouraging because of prayer. It's also encouraging because of our position. It encourages my heart to know that I was chosen before the foundation of the world. That's my position. What else is my position? I have a position of power. As I said, chosen is a past thing. Power is a present thing. Look at verse 4. We know, brothers, loved by God, that you are chosen, and that our good news came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. The word of God came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit. Did you know that when we gather as the church, we are not only encouraged by our past, we were chosen before the foundation of the world, but by our present state of being. Paul is reminding these people in the church in Thessalonica that they weren't converted by some sort of self-improvement program. They didn't just muster up some gumption or personal wisdom to reach this kind of personal epiphany in life. They were saved because they believed the word of God and that word of God was unleashed in their hearts with power and the very spirit of God bursting out in their lives. 
Now, what kind of power or manifestation of the Holy Spirit are we talking about here? Think about Thessalonica. Was there some sort of miracle or healing or resurrection performed at Thessalonica? Well, if you go back to the record of Paul taking the gospel there, you won't find any record of a miracle that Paul performed. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't, just that there's no record of it. You might say, well, he he, uh, preached the gospel to them. Did they all speak in tongues as a result of the filling of the Spirit? Have some kind of supernatural event take place there, speaking in uh, foreign languages? Again, the record in Acts doesn't indicate that. It, It could have happened. Some of those things could have occurred in Thessalonica. We don't know. There's no record. All we get is that Paul, verse 1 in, uh, in Acts chapter 17, Paul came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul, as was custom was, went to them three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scripture, explained and demonstrated Christ was a sufferer, rise again from the dead, and said, This Jesus whom I preach to you is a Christ. Some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of devout Greeks and leading women. That's all it says about what happened there in terms of their coming to faith. So you say, well, where's the power? Where's the Holy Spirit? Because Paul says in in 1 Thessalonians that when we preached to you, we didn't preach to you uh, in some kind of empty, vain thing. It was in power and in the Holy Spirit. Where's the power? Well, here it is. They heard the word. They believed the word. They repented, were saved. They received the Holy Spirit. And here's the power. God changed them. God changed them. And so much of the time we run around as believers today looking for some new supernatural thing to happen in our lives. And we forget the supernatural thing that has already happened in our lives. We are in a position where the Spirit of God is living in us and He has changed us. Chapter 2, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote this to these people. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also, listen, effectively works in you who believe. That's the power that was present at that time. Chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how... You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They had a change in their lives. There's a a power that came when they came to faith. Chapter 2, verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea and in Christ Jesus. You began to imitate those who are in Christ. Now, What happened was their current position 
in Christ was they are a people of power. They are a people of the Holy Spirit. And when we gather together in church, if we're going to be an encouraging church, we're not only going to be a place, a people of prayer, we're going to be a people that remind each other of our position. Number one, we came to faith. We are a chosen people. Number two, we are a people of power and the Holy Spirit. What was Paul saying to the Thessalonians? That they had chosen Christ and that they had no buyer's remorse. Paul is saying here that this church at Thessalonica received the gospel that immediately made sense out of their past, present, and future. And it was though their eyes were finally open and they knew the truth, they knew wisdom. There was nothing that could dissuade them from this life. The people of the church in Thessalonica were a people of encouragement because their faith was real and also because there were a people of prayer, a people that reminded each other of their position, and not only the position, the final word is that that word also came in much assurance, in much assurance. Look at what it says. We know, brothers, loved by God, that you are chosen and that our good news came to you not in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. Paul reminds them that the faith they hold wasn't just established in the past, chosen before the foundation of the world, held in the present by the power of the Holy Spirit, but affords them the confidence of their future. We've been given a gospel with much full assurance. What that says to me is that we have a faith that elicits confidence in the bearer. Well, the people of Thessalonica were a people of encouragement because their faith was real. They had prayer, they had position, and we didn't get there today. We will get there next week. They had a pattern. In other words, Paul was a pattern, an example for them on how to live, and they became a pattern or example for other churches on how to live. Well, I just wanted to close with this uh, illustration. It's a little bit longer, but I thought it gave a, a good summation of what it means that the church is a place of encouragement. This story reads like this. One man who was ousted from his profession for an indiscretion took work as a hood carrier simply to put bread on the table. He was suddenly plunged into a drastically different world. Instead of going to an office each day, he was hauling loads of concrete block up to, concrete block up to the fifth level of a construction site. Gone was the piped-in music in the corridors. Now he had to endure blaring transistors. Any girl who walked by was subject to rude remarks and whistles. Profanity shot through the air, especially from the foreman, whose primary tactics were whining and intimidation. For, and he blanks this out, For blank's sake, you blank, can't you do anything right? I never worked with such a bunch of blank in all my life. Well, near the end of the third week, the new employee felt he could take no more. 
I'll work till break time this morning, he told himself, and then that's it. I'm going home. He'd already been the butt of more than one joke when his lack of experience caused him to do something foolish. The stories were retold constantly thereafter. I just can't handle any more of this. A while later, he decided to finish out the morning and then leave at lunchtime. Shortly before noon, the foreman came around with paychecks. As he handed the man his envelope, he made his first civil comment to him in three weeks. Yay, there's a woman working in the front office who knows you. Says she takes care of your kids sometimes. Who? He named the woman, who sometimes helped in the nursery of the church where the man and his family worshipped. The foreman then went on with his rounds. When the hod carrier opened his envelope, he found, along with his check, a handwritten note from the payroll clerk. She wrote this, When one part of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer with it. Just wanted you to know that I'm praying for you these days. He stared at the note, astonished at God's timing. He hadn't even known the woman worked for this company. Here at his lowest hour, she'd given him the courage to go on, to push another wheelbarrow of mortar up that ramp. That's what church is supposed to be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the places where you have placed us the people among whom you have put us. Lord, we pray that those places can be places of encouragement and that we can be people of encouragement. Lord, we we pray for any who are listening to this who really need that kind of encouragement now. Help them to remember, Lord, that they are a chosen people a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Help them to remember that they have within them your Holy Spirit, and and that is a power beyond our capacity to understand. You have put us into such a position. You've given us a, a position of assurance that we have uh, uh, an eternity ahead of us that is outside of this world. Thank you, Lord, for taking care of all of our needs, even the needs that we have emotionally and spiritually. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.